Amen. So we continue our study this morning in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2 as we look at what it is to be a resident alien. And this morning we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 8. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 to 8. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. This is the word of the Lord this morning. I just want to look at three points. Just as God has promised, he has made us to be a new temple. He has made us to be a new priesthood, and he's called us to offer new sacrifices. So first, you as the church are a new temple. Look there at verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Of course, the spiritual house is the temple. And we've got to remember, as we understand the Bible, the temple was a really big deal to the audience of Peter. It was the central thing, the central place to the Jewish faith. So at the time of Jesus, it was of central importance. It was where God dwelt. It was where heaven and earth overlapped. It was where worship happened. It was where sacrifices were made and where the forgiveness of sins took place. And so the temple was extremely important. And as we read the Gospels, we see that questioning and even threatening the temple is one of the things that got Jesus in trouble. Jesus went around doing stuff that was previously reserved for the priests in the temple. He offered forgiveness of sins outside of the temple. And so people ask, who do you think you are? By what right do you have to offer the forgiveness of sins? And so as he's questioned before the Sanhedrin, people accuse him. He's the one who said, destroy this temple and I will destroy it. He's the one that as people are walking by the cross, as Jesus is there, they mock him and say, oh, you who would destroy the temple in three days and raise it up, why don't you save yourself? And so Jesus was known as this prophet who questioned and even threatened the temple. That's what got him in trouble. He came and he cleansed out the temple. You remember that in Mark 13? He made the temple irrelevant. And in fact, in Mark 13, he says that in a generation, the temple would be destroyed. Not one stone would be left on another. And in 40 years, AD 70, the Roman army comes in and destroys the temple, just like the prophet Jesus said would take place. So Jesus replaces the temple in God's purpose. John 1.14, Jesus, the word came and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And so now Jesus is the presence of God on earth. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap. Jesus is where God meets with his people. Jesus is where we find forgiveness of sins. But that's not all. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. 
So Jesus is the living stone, of course, living because of 1, 3, chapter 1, verse 3, the resurrection of the dead that is so important for Peter and for all of the New Testament. He's a living stone, and because he's a living stone, we then, as the church, are living stones united around him. He is in us, and we are in him. Jesus is the temple, but so are we. So are his people, the church. We are now the temple. We are living stones being built into a spiritual house. So the church is the temple. I want us to see this from a few places this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? You, the church, are God's temple. You are the dwelling place for God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says your bodies are the temple. So 1 Corinthians 3, it's a plural you, it's y'all. Y'all are the temple. But then in 1 Corinthians 6, he's speaking of our own individual bodies. You are the temple of the living God because God's spirit lives in you. Flip with me over to 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger in Peter, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, verse 16. In the call to be pure, in the call to not commit idolatry, he says this, what's in common, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols for we are the temple of the living God as God has said and I love this section of scripture because here Paul quotes or alludes to like seven or eight different passages in the Old Testament most of which have to do with this future temple that God's going to build he says I will live with them and walk among them I will be their God and they will be my people therefore Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says, you are the temple of the living God. For, as it is written, there's all these promises about God coming to dwell with his people again. But then notice there's an unfortunate chapter break in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we, the church, have these promises... Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We are the temple, as God had prophesied in all these Old Testament passages, seven or eight. Therefore, we have these promises. They're ours, which we already saw in Peter, right? Do you remember chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, where he said the prophets prophesied of the grace that was going to come to you? The Old Testament prophets weren't serving themselves. They were serving the church. They were serving you. They spoke of the things that have been told you. And here his point is, be pure. You are the temple, so be a person of purity. Rid yourselves of sin like we saw last week. Don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So you are the temple. I love the way Ephesians puts it. You can flip there too if you want. Ephesians chapter 2. Same idea. Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, 
are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So not only are we the temple, it's an unfinished project. We are continuing to build the temple. And so as each stone is added, the presence of God is expanded on earth. So part of our job then as evangelists, which we're all called to, is to be temple builders. Because as we share the gospel and as people trust in Christ, they're added to the temple. The temple grows. And so God's presence, as each person receives the spirit, God's presence grows and expands on earth. We are the temple, which means God's spirit dwells within us. He is here. If we are here, he is with us. We have his presence. We don't have to conjure it up. By the way, just as a footnote, this is why we shouldn't refer to this building as a sanctuary. I know it's just habit and tradition, but you think about what is a sanctuary? A sanctuary is nothing more than a temple. It's a sacred space. And did you know there's nothing sacred about this building at all? It becomes sacred when you are in it. The church is the sanctuary. And we're all united together around him with the same king, the same purpose, the same vision, the same values, and the same passion. And each has a role to play. One time there was this visiting monarch and he goes to the king of Sparta and the king of Sparta just kept boasting about the walls of the city. And there were no walls of the city. So the visiting monarch's confused and asks, what are you boasting about? I don't understand what you're talking about. And the Spartan king points to his army and he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. And so it is with the church. Each stone has a role to play, but we're not a wall of defense. We're actually a wall of offense. Think about Jesus' statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I think we often think wrongly about that because what is a gate? A gate is defensive. And so the church will advance over the gates of hell as we do our peace and do our work as part of the temple. Each a living stone connected to the living stone. By the way, I can't help but mention that. I think it's pretty significant that Peter, whose name was Petros Rock, did not say anything about him, him being some special rock or some special stone. As far as he's concerned, he's just one of the many living stones. It's connected to the living stone. He's just a fellow elder, as we'll see in chapter 5. So we are the temple because Jesus is the temple. But he's also the foundation stone of the temple. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 6. For in Scripture, Peter loves his Old Testament. It says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Here Peter quotes Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, and he tells us that the cornerstone of this new temple is Jesus Christ. He is chosen, he is precious. Now I'm not a building guy, I'm not a construction guy, I'm not even very handy. One time our garage door broke and we just moved. <laughs> not really. But I do know what the cornerstone is. The cornerstone is of central and vital importance. The cornerstone is that stone that is laid first and everything else is lined up around it. It sets the agenda. 
Everything else conforms to it. And so Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple. Apart from him, there is no temple. It would not exist. And so we sing, in Christ alone, cornerstone. It's all about him. He is to be placed first. He is to have preeminence, as Colossians says. He is to be everything in our lives. And everything else in our lives is to align to this cornerstone. Colossians 1.16 says that everything comes through him and ultimately for him. Everything in this world is created through him and ultimately exists for him. And that includes our lives. And I wonder today, is Jesus truly your cornerstone or just one of the other stones in the mix? Is he just on the sidewall or is he the one giving your life existence? Martin Luther said that your cornerstone is whatever you build your life on. And so let's ask ourselves this morning, what is it that we're building our life on? What is it that you're thinking about as you lay your head on the pillow at night? What is it that you're thinking about as you first arise in the morning? What is your anchor? What is your compass? What is your north star? What is your driving motivation? Another way to ask this is, is Jesus truly our Lord? This Lord, as we see here in these verses, this cornerstone was not and is not received by all. To some, he's precious, he's everything, but others reject him. People look at Jesus and say, I do not want to build my life on that cornerstone. I prefer my own wisdom, my own supposed liberty, my own self. And remember that Peter's hearers were being rejected. This is a letter to encourage and strengthen a persecuted church. And so what he's wanting to communicate here is don't be surprised that you're rejected. Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, was rejected. Don't be surprised. He says that very thing in chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter 4.12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So we shouldn't be surprised that we're going to be rejected. Jesus was rejected. Jesus also told us that. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. It hated me first. They rejected the cornerstone. They will reject the stones connected to him. So be encouraged, Peter says. Because, he says, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. They may shame you now, but ultimately they will be the ones that are put to shame. So this cornerstone, it means everything. Again, it is of vital importance. He is to be received or rejected. There is no middle grounds. He either causes trust or he causes people to stumble and fall. Everyone is affected by Jesus. There is no neutrality. It will be negative or it will be positive. He himself said he is divisive. He said, don't think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He came to change and turn over allegiances. And you probably know that that doesn't happen easily. Remove lords, lowercase l, and become the true Lord. And there are ultimate consequences for rejecting Christ. Jesus himself, he quoted this same psalm, Psalm 118, over in Matthew chapter 21. Let me read it to you. Matthew 21, verse 42. He says... Have you never read the scriptures? And he quotes the same psalm Peter does. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruits. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. There are ultimate consequences for rejecting this cornerstone. But did you catch what Peter did there? He wanted to encourage us by showing that even the hard stuff, even those who reject Jesus is not outside the plan of God. Look again at verse 8. Second half of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. It's what they were destined for. Peter's audience is like, hey, man, we're losing here. We're we're being persecuted, help. And Peter wants to encourage, listen, even those that are rejecting Christ, even those that are persecuting you aren't outside of the plan of God. They were destined for this. This word destined is often used of God's work of predestination. Jesus says it in John 15. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Same word. Chose you and appointed you. So Peter wants us to be encouraged that even the hard stuff, It's not outside of God's control. Even those who reject were destined for it. God really is sovereign. All Christians affirm that God is sovereign. Not everybody really means it, but he really is sovereign, really is under control. And this is a hard verse. This is a verse that you probably won't hear in most churches, but here at Southside, we don't skip verses. They were destined for this, and this is not the only place that Scripture teaches. I want to read a few passages so you hear this, not from me, but from the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says this. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to look, <clears throat> excuse me, love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who not believe the truth but have delighted in wickedness. God sent the delusion. Look at Revelation chapter 17, verse 16. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin, leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast, to their royal authority. God really is sovereign. God put it into their hearts. Proverbs 16, 4, even the wicked, God has made all things, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And it's not just Proverbs, it's not just John, it's not just Paul. Let me read again some of Jesus' sharper words. Matthew chapter 11. I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God is sovereign even over the hard stuff, even over the rejection. Jesus says in John chapter 6, no one can come to me. No one has the ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Romans 9 says God hardens whom he will, and he has mercy on whom he will. 
He really is sovereign. I think we've got to get this if we're going to truly be comforted and make it through the hard times. So let me read a few more. Again, these aren't verses you're going to find on coffee cups. Lamentations 3.38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? He's not only sovereign over the good, he's sovereign over the bad. Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light, I create darkness, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos 3, 6, when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? He is in control. We saw in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, that Jesus was chosen and precious from before the foundation of the world. Think about that for a minute. If God had planned before he even created that he would send a lamb to redeem sinners, then sinners had to be a part of his plan. He is in control from the beginning to the end. And Peter wants us to be encouraged by this. We should marvel at God's marvelous plan and his gracious purpose to include us. And so here scripture teaches God destined them to stumble. But notice, and this is extremely important, he also says they are responsible. Look again at verse 8, 1 Peter 2, 8. They stumble because they disobey the message. It's their fault, which is also what they were destined for. Scripture again and again affirms these two truths, and there's all kinds of wacky theologies that get them out of balance. We have to affirm God is totally sovereign, meticulously so. And human beings are totally responsible for their actions. We have to affirm both. And if you're like, I don't get it, my mind can't work it out, that's okay, just trust the Lord. Work hard, do your part, and then sleep knowing he's got it. He's got this. I love the way the book of Acts puts this because it talks about really the most heinous act of history that God plans. It was his plan. He was sovereign. Yet the people who did it are held responsible. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God planned it. You're responsible for who did it. Same thing a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together. It was them. They planned it. They met with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. They conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did... What your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So God is totally sovereign and humans are totally responsible. And we have to affirm both. And I would argue, as we're going to see in later chapters, is this is the main way we can survive, not only survive, but flourish through suffering, is knowing God has a plan and a purpose behind all things. Even when we may not understand it, we trust him. Why do we trust him? Because he's a father. He's good. And he has good plans. And so Peter wants to know, yes, he's being rejected. You're being rejected. But be encouraged. Persevere. God's got it. As Daniel says, none could stay his hand. He has a plan and he's working it out. So don't lose hearts. He has this thing. So you're the temple and Christ is his cornerstone. That's the first point. It's the longest. Don't worry. Second point is you are a priesthood. You are a temple as the church. As the church, we are a priesthood. Look again at 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood. What a wonderfully mixed metaphor. We're the, we're the temple, the building, yet we're also the priests that go into the building and do work. That's a pretty radical statement. And remember, Peter's audience would have known the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was only the descendants of Aaron that could be priests, only the descendants of Levi. Think of the book of Leviticus. It's all the duties of the priests. So it wasn't for everybody. It was for a special class. And even within that, a special class within a special class. But the priesthood became corrupt. Ezekiel 34 talks about how corrupt the priest became. And so the prophets began to speak of a coming new priest and a new priesthood would be totally different than went before. And so Isaiah in chapter 56 speaks of these foreigners, these non-Levites who would join the people of the Lord and even would be selected to serve as priests. Non-Levites as priests. It would have been scandalous to hear that in Isaiah's day. Isaiah says in Isaiah 66 verse 18, Speaking of the future, and I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. It will, I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of them who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, the Lydians, famous as archers, to Deval, to Greece, and to distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to be to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And here's the key. And I will select some of them, foreigners, pagans of the nations, to be priests and Levites says the Lord. Thinking of all that Isaiah says, remember we've seen it many times, we'll see it again next week, that God's going to come and redeem and restore and regather his people. And when he does so, it will include all nations and they'll come. And one of the things that they will do is they will be priests, non-Israelites, foreigners, priests. Brothers and sisters, you are the fulfillment of this vision because you are a priesthood, every one of you. We're all priests. We need no human priests. We have access to the Father so we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. We can go straight to him. I think we take that for granted sometimes. We can go straight to him. We need no human mediator, no sinful person. We don't have to work our way to gain access to God. We don't have to sweat our way. We don't have to travel to the ancient Near East. We don't have to say a certain amount of Hail Marys through faith in Jesus Christ. We have access through grace by faith. You are a priest. You have access to the Father. And what do priests do? They mediate between God and people. That's your calling, brothers and sisters, to be a priest. God has ordained that the means by which he introduces himself to others is through you, the priesthood, in your neighborhoods, in your jobs. You are the God-ordained priest in that place. You have the knowledge of God and you are commissioned to spread that knowledge, to build the temple as we are the workers in that temple. You are a priest. You are called to ministry. This is, again, one of the differences. In the Old Covenant, it was only the Levites that could do the ministry. But in the New Covenant, every Christian is called to ministry. It's not the case that pastors replace priests. Not at all. There are no priests. Now we're all priests. This is what the Reformation taught about the priesthood of all believers. So you're called to ministry. One of the ways we can ask, do we really understand ministry in the Bible is who does the ministry in the local church? It's not the pastors. 
It's not the elders. It's not the deacons. It is the saints. Ephesians 4, we saw it a few months ago, that God has given the church pastors to teach and equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Who does the ministry of the local church? The people of God do the ministry because we're a priesthood. We all have a role to play. Third thing, we're a temple, we're a priesthood, and we're called to make new sacrifices. Look again at verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A temple, the priests in that temple who offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, thinking in terms of the Bible, there was no such thing as spiritual sacrifices. You hear the word sacrifice, you think of the blood of bulls and goats. But Jesus Christ has come and made the once for all sacrifice, so there are no longer sacrifices to be made, yet we're still called to make spiritual sacrifices. And Peter here doesn't really unpack it, does he? He just says it. You're called to make spiritual sacrifices. But we find help. We find help. So I want to mention five, in in closing, five ways, five types of spiritual sacrifices from other places in Scripture. First, we are called to offer sacrifices by singing to the Lord. Singing, which is in many ways unique to the Christian faith in terms of religions. There's incantations. There's not a lot of singing in other religions because we have something to sing about. Here's how Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. A sacrifice of praise. So as we come together, I get this picture of just this aroma as we sing to the Lord, going to the Lord, it's pleasing to him. Our singing is a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord. And so... Some of you aren't singers, you don't like it, but let me encourage you to take this serious. It's one of the ways we are to sacrifice to the Lord. So start getting ready for Sunday mornings on Saturday night. Come in on time with a prayerful heart engaged and ready to sing and offer a sacrifice to him. Second way is by loving one another. How do we we offer spiritual sacrifices? We love one another. Again, Hebrews 13 puts it this way. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Doing good to one another is a spiritual sacrifice. And I love the way it's so generic. What does that mean? Anything that someone needs would be doing good to them. And then he says, and sharing. And that word share most often has to do with physical sharing, with financial sharing, sharing of resources to meet one another needs. So as we go and we meet a need of a fellow member of Southside Baptist, there's a sacrifice. There is an aroma that is pleasing to the Lord. So do good and meet one another's needs because... They please the Lord. Third way we sacrifice spiritually, biblically speaking, is by financially supporting ministry. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. So as we give, we are offering a sacrifice. And if you're a member, I hope that you regularly tithe and give offerings beyond that. I love the way Randy Alcorn speaks of tithing for the Christian. Tithing, giving 10% of the Lord's money back to the Lord, is really the training wheels of Christian giving. It's the place to start, not the place to end. 
Preachers often get a bad rap talking about money all the time. But the truth of it is, if preachers are faithful to the Bible, they will be talking about money quite a bit. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about heaven or hell. Because he knew he wants hearts. And he knew that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so giving, as we give, we give the Lord our hearts. So we make offerings through sacrificially supporting ministry. Fourth way is by telling others of the Lord. Romans 15, verse 16. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So part of our worship is giving. Part of our worship is evangelizing. As we tell others about Jesus and they come to the Lord, they become an offering acceptable to the Lord. We're all called to it. It's hard and challenging, but it is worthwhile and it's a call we're called to to commit to. Spiritual sacrifices by being obedient to Jesus, telling others about his glory and his grace. Maybe one place to start there is just to begin to pray that the Lord would burden you mentioned earlier that there are ultimate consequences for rejecting Christ. Maybe start by praying that you would be burdened by those you know and those in your neighborhood, that they are, there are ultimate consequences for them, eternal consequences, and that you would be burdened by that and burdened to move. That's the fourth way. And then the fifth way we offer spiritual sacrifices is really just by offering our whole selves. Romans 12.1, therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Because what God's done for us, we offer our whole lives, our whole selves, everything we are is a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. Our lives are his. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So you're a new temple with Christ as the cornerstone. New priesthood called to offer new spiritual sacrifices, offering praise, good works toward others, sharing resources, giving to ministry, proclaiming the gospel, and ultimately, everything we do. Because Jesus is Lord.